We ask that you would animate both the speaker and the hearer, and most of all, that Jesus Christ is glorified here this morning. We pray this in his name for his church. Amen. There's a movie that came out in 2018 called Adrift. Have you seen this movie? It's based on the true story um, of Red Sky in the Morning that was written in 2002, the story about Tammy Oldham Ashcroft and her ordeal in uh, living through Hurricane Raymond in 1983. So the story begins, Tammy meets this guy in Tahiti, and they decide to sail together, but before they head out, uh, Peter and Christine Crompton, owners of a yacht, uh, Hazania, which was a 44-foot Trintella yacht, they offer Richard $10,000 if he'll ferry the yacht from Tahiti back to San Diego. And he thinks about it for a while, and he says that he'll do it for the money if he, they also include first-class air trip tickets back from San Diego for himself and his girlfriend, Tammy. And so they agree to do that. The couple depart Tahiti on Hazania, and for quite a few days, nothing eventful happens at all. They receive information that a hurricane is approaching, and they're trying to maneuver out of the way, but they decide to continue going on towards San Diego in spite of the fact that this hurricane comes on. And of course, the, the hurricane hits. They're caught in the storm. Tammy tries to radio for help. Nobody's responding. Um, the storm alters its course, and they're caught right, literally in the middle of it, and they're caught in the eye of the storm. Um, she tries to radio for help again, no response. Um, the storm is so severe that they have no choice but to lower their sails in hopes of not being capsized um, by these huge waves. In reality, though, the, the ship gets turned over and over and over by these giant waves that dismasts them. Richard gets knocked unconscious and knocked overboard. His lifeline breaks. He's lost at sea. Tammy is down below. The ship's tumbling and she gets knocked unconscious. When she awakens, the storm's over, but she discovers she's all alone. She can't start the engine, she can't radio for help. Um, the boat is floating, but just barely. Um, she starts to realize that she is alone and she can't get any help. So the, the rest of the movie is about her, her, her 41 days at sea with uh, no power, just adrift. I think anybody who sails can relate to that movie. I mean, you, if you've been sailing, you can relate to what it would be like to be caught in a storm. Well, actually, I think anybody who sails knows what it's like to get seasick, you know, just in moderately lumpy seas. I sail, I used to sail a lot, but people would ask me, do you get seasick? All the time, you know, like, well, what do you do? I throw up. <laughs> so if you have lumpy seas, you, you get, you can get seasick, but if you get stormy seas, you can be in abject misery. I once heard about this lady who went out on a one-day fishing cruise, and she got terribly seasick, and she crawled to the captain with the keys to her brand-new car and said she would give him the keys if he would turn the boat around. If you've been seasick, you understand that. <laughs> anyway, well, the story before us today is the plight of Paul and his friends in a stormy seas, a, a thousand times worse than um, what e even could be imagined by the, the movie and the book that we've just met. So in Acts 27, it's the account of a great storm in the Mediterranean Sea uh, the, uh, that overtakes the ship that's bearing Paul back to Rome. 
This is a literal storm, but the point for us is it is also figurative. It's a symbol of the storms that come into our lives. So the idea of being overtaken by storms, the idea of being caught in the, the storms of life, you know, that's the stuff of poets and hymn writers. You know, I started looking for hymns to, to mention that had to do with storms and anchors in the storm. But literally, most of the hymns, uh, if you look in a hymnal, are about surviving storms, about surviving um, the, the, the huge waves at sea. So, like I said, this is the stuff of poets and, and hymn writers. It's also the stuff that sooner or later, each and every one of us is going to have to wrestle with. What, what are we going to do in the midst of the storms of life, and how will we bear it? You know, you can persuade yourself, especially when things are going well, when you have beautiful blue skies and calm seas, you can persuade yourself that you are somehow immune to storms. You are not. Or you can persuade yourself when you're not going through a storm that you will be able to manage the storm when it does overtake you because you've got the skill of the of a, a experienced sailor in the storms of life. You don't. You aren't. The reality is that all of us will be caught in a tempestuous sea. And the story before us, Paul's experience, is the story of how he prevailed through a storm like this and how we too can prevail in these storms. So I invite you to turn with me to Acts 27, verse 1, where we left off last week. This chapter gives us a rare glimpse of what uh, sea travel was like in the ancient world. And we find that it's amazingly accurate. In the 1840s, there was a Scotsman by the name of James Smith who was um, a fellow at Edinburgh and also the Royal London Academy. So he's a man of great learning and academics. And he wanted to trace out Paul's voyage, the very one that we're looking at today. And so in 1848, he wrote the book, The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And one of the things that he concludes, and I'm going to uh, quote him several times today, but one of the things he concludes is that Acts 27 is the product of an eyewitness who was not a sailor. He says, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor, and no man not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts and less from actual observation. So from Luke's account, we get a very accurate view of the route that the ship took, the, the ancient navigating skills, details of the ship's physical condition, um, the way that the crew tries to cope with the storm. So Luke is um, developing this narrative because he's trying to explain to us that God will fulfill his promises and that God's purposes will be fulfilled in spite of the fact that all of the circumstances look contrary to that. All of the factors seem to make the fulfillment of God's purposes highly unlikely. The Luke's point is God will keep his promises. God will fulfill his purposes. Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they discovered they delivered Paul and some of other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adiridium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. 
And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when he had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. As the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, so Paul has been in Caesarea for two years, and he finally ends up appealing to Caesar because he realizes he's not going to get a fair trial any other way. He's not convicted of a crime. He's not a convict prisoner, but he is a suspect at this point. So he's treated well as a Roman citizen. He's not been convicted of a crime. Um, it's two years since he's been in Caesarea, but now finally he's going to Rome, which is not only his desire, but God's desire too, as God has revealed to him. We're told right away that he gets on a coastal ship of Ad Adramidium. Adramidium is a little town um, along the west coast of Turkey. We're not going anywhere near it. It was not far from Pergamum, um, not far from the ancient city of Troas, or excuse me, of Troy, the city of Troy. It was opposite the island of Lesbos. That's where this ship is from. It is a coastal ship, which means it hugs the coastline. It doesn't go out into the open sea. So they get on this ship. They sail up to Sidon, 69 miles north of Caesarea, and that's where their first port of call is. Um, Julius knows sooner or later, if he stays on this coastal ship in one of the harbors that they'll land in, he'll find a ship, a bigger ship, an ocean-going vessel that they can actually get to Italy. So he doesn't know where or when, but that's his plan, to follow along the coast until he finds a bigger ship that will take them to Italy. They get to Sidon, and here we're told that Julius treats Paul kindly, gives him permission to go to his friends. I'm, I'm sure he gave him permission with the proviso that a soldier would accompany him. He's not just going to turn a prisoner loose. He's going to have the soldier go with him. Um, he's going to be detailed to go out with him. So they, they put out again from Sidon. They start to sail. I wonder if I can draw an imaginary picture. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, and they start over here in Caesarea, They've gone up to Sidon. Now they're going to follow the coastline along the south part of Turkey or Asia Minor on this coastal ship. They're not going to make it all the way around. Um, but they're, they're following the south coast of, of what is present-day Turkey. And they're working their way slowly west. They're trying to make their way to ultimately to Rome. And the ship is just creeping along from, from point to point, port to port. It's, fo it's following the coastline. The prevailing winds through the summer are westerly through the Mediterranean, and the current is going that way as well. So they're just creeping along. If the wind or the, the water gets too heavy, they'll just duck in. There's a whole bunch of little teeny coves that they can hide in and wait for the weather to be more um, conducive. And finally, they get to the port of Myra. Actually, it's a, the, the port is Adriake, which is uh, near Myra, and there they encounter one of the Egyptian uh, ships of the fleet. It's a, it's a big grain ship that's, um, that's come up from Alexandria, and it's on its way to Patchouli in, in Italy, and so it's made its way that far. Now, Egypt is the granary of Rome, and so there's a lot of trade. There was a whole fleet of ships 
which were privately owned but under government contract. This is one of those ships. These grain ships are huge. They're, now try to imagine just the, the, the size of this. It's 140 feet long, it's 36 feet wide, and its draft is 30 feet. Now that's draft is higher or deeper than this, than this room is tall. That's how deep the, the boat would sit in the water. It was a very sturdy ship, but it had its disadvantages in the high seas. One of which was it didn't have a rudder like modern ships. They had two huge paddles off of each part of the stern of the ship to steer by. It, it had only one mast, and so it was kind of square rigged. This one mast carried one big square sail. Um, but the chief drawback among this kind of a ship was that it couldn't sail into the wind uh, because of the way it was constructed in this kind of a square sail. You couldn't point very high upwind. So it, was, it had a serious disadvantage to that. So they get on this freighter from Myra, and they're trying to make their way west. Again, we're on the south coast of Turkey. They're making their way, their way west, and it's only with difficulty that they finally get to Cnidus, which is just maybe 30 miles in, in all that distance. Um, so from, from there, they decide they're going to, in order to make further westerly progress, they've got to alter their course, and they sail from Canidus due south, and they're following uh, the, the northern coastline of, of uh, Cyprus, and, and they, they jump down from, from there to Crete, rounding the point Salmone uh, on, along Crete there, and they finally made it to a place called Fair Havens. Again, um, Luke tells us that they were coasting along. That doesn't mean that they're gliding along. It means they're following the coast. They're trying to hug the shoreline. In this case, they're trying to stay out of the direct wind. They're trying to be on the lee side of the island. They do that for a couple of reasons. Along the lee side, the wind's not going to be as contrary. Sometimes the wind gets bent as it goes over the island, and they're going to be protected from the predominant wind by, by hugging the coast on its lee side. So that's what they're trying to do, and they finally make it to a place called Fairhavens. Fairhavens is evidently named by the Chamber of Commerce because it is not fair and it is not a haven. It's, um, it's not a good place to hang out. The, 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 the little tiny bay there is open to the south and therefore open to all this, the winter storms that would be coming along. And it's there that they discuss the fact that maybe we should winter over, maybe we shouldn't go any further. So the, the sailors are saying, okay, but not here, any place but Fairhaven. There's nothing to do here anyway. It was just this little, um, little niche there. But there was a place that they knew that it would be a better place to winter over it's a place called Phoenix. It's further to the west along the island, and it's only 40 miles away. So they, they, they talk about it, you know, what, how they're, what they're going to do there, and they decide that they'll, they don't want to weather over in Fairhaven. They want to make it to Phoenix. Verse 9, since much time passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo, but of the ship and also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea 
from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Okay, so they're, they're at Fairhavens. They're talking about where they're going to winter over because they realize they're not going to make it to Rome before winter. Um, there, there was a, a, a shoulder season of sailing in the Mediterranean that went from about September 14th to November 11th. But from November 11th until the middle of March, the sea was closed to navigation. The, the, the term was uh, mare clausum, the sea is closed. So they realize they're not going to, they're already into the shoulder season, the dangerous part of sea tra traffic. And we know that because Paul, Luke has told us the fast is already over. The fast that he's talking about is the, the, the fast of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, which ha happens on Tishri the 10th. In the year that we're talking about, 59, it happened on October 5. So they're well into the middle of October here at Fairhaven. So they're, 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 they're well into this shoulder season, this time of dangerous sailing, and they're pretty close to the time of no sailing when, this, when the seas are closed, from, again, from November 11th to some, sometime in, in mid-March. Um, they now realize they're not going to make it before the sea closes, and so now they're looking for a place to, to spend the winter. Um, so Paul advises them. He, by the way, when he advises them this time, he's not speaking from uh, revelation. God hasn't told them anything. He's speaking from experience. If we look at 2 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verse 25 or something like that, um, Paul talks about that he's already been shipwrecked three times. So he's been shipwrecked three times. And so he's speaking from experience and he's saying, I don't think it's a good idea. We shouldn't go out any further. We should just stay here. The council is held. So they have the ship owner who typically serves as the captain. And then you have the pilot who's the guy kind of in charge of, of their course. The centurion asks them what their advice was. And naturally, he takes the advice of the ship captain and the pilot who say, this is not a good place for us to winter over. There's a nice place in Phoenix, just 40 miles further. Let's, let's make for Phoenix. And so uh, the centurion naturally decides to go with the, mar the mariner's advice. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, who are you going to trust when it comes to mariner's information? Somebody who knows the seas or some itinerant Jewish pastor? What does he know? He's nervous anyway. He's been shipwrecked before. He might not be making a good decision. So the ultimate decision ends with the centurion, even though the ship belongs to the captain because it's on contract with the Roman government, and the centurion is the Roman authority. So he gets to make the final decision. So they they uh, decide to move on to Phoenix, the 40 miles further on. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing south means that's where the wind's coming from, not where the wind's blowing to. When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeasterner, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, it gave way, and we were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island of Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us all, lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last being abandoned. All right, so they, they're leaving Fairhaven. It sounds, it feels like everything's in their favor. There's this gentle wind blowing on shore as they're along the south coast of Crete. And it, it seems like this is what they've been waiting for. They, they set off and they're, they're, they're rounding this point called Cape Matala. From Cape Matala, the, let me erase all this and start over here. So we have, we have Crete here, and they're in fair havens, and they have to go around this point. And from there, the coastline heads mostly northwest. It cuts away from them. So even though they're making a more or less westerly cut across there, suddenly the land is falling away from them. So they're getting further and further out to sea, although they haven't changed their course. You're still with me? And while they're, while they're um, crossing the Gulf of Masara, without warning, the wind flips around. It changes. There's a sudden change from the south now to a violent northern wind. There's this furious northeasterner. So the, the, the wind is coming down off of Mount Ida on the center of Crete, and it's rushing down through this uh, big opening. And Luke says it's a typhonic wind, like the word typhoon, meaning that the, the, the water and the wind are circling. Now Luke refers to this um, contrary currents of both air and water. Now, the sailors recognized this old foe. This is not an uncommon um, type of storm. They even had a name for it, Uraquilo. It's, they're caught in this hurricane-like like storm. The ship's caught in this gale, and because of the design that I've just told you, the limitations of the ship, they can't head up. They can't point very high into the wind. They have no option under this furious wind but to scud before it, to like, you're sailing downwind. You can't, you can't make many other choices at this point. So now they realize that all chance of reaching Phoenix are, are completely out of the question. They're getting pushed more or less downwind. They, 23 miles or so from this point is this tiny, tiny little island of Kata, and they manage to get under the lee, but only temporarily. They're getting pushed too hard. They take advantage of this temporary lull to do a few things. And one of the things that they do is they haul the dinghy aboard. So typically, the ship's boat serves as a lifeboat, serves as the shuttle, is towed behind the ship. But they've had no opportunity to bring it aboard until now because they were caught under this storm so uh, suddenly and so violently. Now, Luke tells us they were only able with difficulty to get the ship's boat, the dinghy, on board, probably because it, by this time it's full of water. They finally get it on board the boat and they secure it. The next thing they do is they pass cables or heavy ropes around the ship and they bind the ship together to keep the timbers from breaking out on, on the boat. And uh, the third precaution that they take is they start, to, uh, um, they, they start to throw tackle overboard to create a sea anchor. Now they're deathly afraid, we were told, of getting caught in the greater Surtis. The Greater Sirtis is a sandbar that's about 180 miles wide and dozens of miles deep along the north coast of Africa. Almost no ship that gets driven in there is able to get back out. The, sands, uh, the sandbars will, will uh, hold the ship fast, and there's a lot of 
uh, seaweed and stuff like that in there, and the, any ship that gets caught in there can't to get back out. So they're deathly afraid of getting caught in these sandbars off the coast of the African coast west of Cyrene. So they lower the gear, and Luke obviously doesn't know the technical language, and so he's just telling you what he sees. They lower the gear. They're dropping a sea anchor. The reason for the sea anchor is that it would be towed astern to provide a drag. When the, ship, when the water gets heavy, when the, when the waves get really big, the tendency for the following wave, because remember, they're driven downwind, down sea. So you have a following sea and a following wind. When the waves get big enough, it will, the ship will, will rise up like that, and the following sea will tend to push the stern of the ship sideways as it goes down into the next trough. Well, if the next wave catches you while you're sideways to it, it could flip you over. They don't want that to happen. That's, that's not good. So they have a sea anchor which is dragging them from behind. So that as, the, as the wave picks the ship up, the wave will pass under the ship and the ship will come back down on the back side of the wave. So they're dragging the sea anchor and trying to avoid getting driven onto the, uh, the sandbars. Uh, the next thing that they do is they lay the ship on a starboard tack so that they're more or less uh, sideways to the wind and the waves. Um, they set out storm sails so that they still have control, and then they begin to drift at a rate of about one and a half miles an hour at a course of about eight degrees north of due west, 278 degrees. The next day, there's no abatement in the gale, and so they, they're still quite afraid because they don't know where they are, and they don't know what course they are on. Again, they're afraid of getting driven up on those sandbars, so they start dumping stuff because they want to lessen the draft, how deep the boat sits in the water. They're dumping some of the cargo, some of the gear. Um, we're told that they that they uh, throw the main yard arm off. Now this is a huge chunk of wood, a great big spar that was almost as long as the ship. And that's what the sail would be lifted up on to create the big square sail. And it was so big that it would take all of the ship's company and most of the passengers just to pick up this big spar and heave it overboard. 11 more dreary nights followed. Um, they have a difficult time. They, they, don't, they don't know where they are. Um, they're wanting to make for sure, they want to, to get the ship to shore because they realize that unless they find land soon, the ship will eventually founder at sea. So they're, they're starting to doubt that they'll make it safely. They're starting to um, lose hope. Their, their, their hope has been uh, drained away uh, day by day. Verse uh, 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete. He's not saying, by the way, neener, 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 why didn't you listen to me? He's saying he, he was a credible person. You should listen to me now because what I said was true before. You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. I imagine it would be difficult 
to uh, want to eat, let alone to be able to keep anything down under the situation that they're in, whether by seasickness where you didn't have an appetite or because of anxiety, because of the fear of that we're all going to die. Um, they weren't eating. And Paul um, stands up in the midst of them and he tells them um, that they, they should eat something. Uh, He's, he's now appealing to them to be listened to. He tells them that no injury will happen to them. No one's going to die, but the ship's going to be a total loss. No one else is going to lose their life. And Notice Paul's not claiming to be some miracle worker here. He's not saying he's going to stop the storm. He's going to ride out the storm with them. But the ship will be lost. And the reason for his confidence, he says, is that he's had this angelic vision and he's had this message that has been received from the God whom I worship. As having received this message, you know, Paul is now completely persuaded that things are going to turn out exactly as God has revealed to him. The, the ship uh, would go down. No, I, no life will be lost. But he said, we're going to be tossed up on some island. He doesn't know where. He just knows some island. He could scarcely have known what some island would have been, but the island that he was referring to was the island of Malta, Landing at Malta, it'd be like hitting a needle in a haystack. They're out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Malta is not a single island. It's several islands. There's three large islands of Malta. And the presentation that they would see, the end of Malta, is only about four miles wide on the end that they will, they'll encounter. So literally, it's a needle in a haystack. They're, not gonna, they're way too far south to make it to Sicily. If they missed Malta, it's 200 miles of open ocean before they would uh, get to Africa along the Tunisian coast. But nobody expected the ship to last that long anyway. So and Paul is, is affirming to them that things will happen exactly as God has revealed to them. Now, there's several principles I want to pause here to talk about, several principles that you and I can apply here so that we can face those storms of life with, with courage and, and fearlessness. Um, we might not ever literally be caught in a storm like this, but you are guaranteed sometime, sooner or later, you will be caught in a storm like this in the storms of life. The storms come into our lives, they come in quite suddenly, they come in quite fiercely, ferociously, one day you're in perfect health. It's a beautiful day like today. Uh, you, you feel an ache. You go to the hospital. The, the doctor tells you it's quite serious. Uh, the diagnosis is quite grim. Uh, you're going to have to be operated on. A storm has descended into your life. One day you're sitting at home, lounging around the living room. The telephone rings. Somebody on the other side says, I'm sorry, I have to tell you that your son's been killed in a traffic accident. A tragic accident, yeah. or maybe it's your wife or, or your husband, a, a storm has descended. And before I came here, Connie and I were pastoring in a small rural farming community. There were these two twin boys that came to our youth group, um, Greg and Daryl Camrazel, and they lived on a farm just south of town. Uh, their farm was, the house was a little off from the highway, the road from Tico to Farmington, and it was a dirt road that came from their house up to the paved highway. And then on the other side, there was more dirt road that kept on going. And they liked to do the Dukes of Hazard thing, where they would just bomb down their dirt road, do a little jump across the highway, and then keep going on the other side. 
And this particular day, they came barreling down, ready to jump the highway, and there was a truck carrying a car that T-boned and killed them both. How are you going to stand up to life's storms when news like that comes to you? How does Paul respond when the storms overtake him? Well, the first thing is that Paul knew that God was with him. And on this occasion, an angel reminded him of the Lord was there and reassured him of his presence, and I'm sure that was powerful and effective. But Paul knew that was always the case. Before Jesus left us, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, Surely I am with you always. I am with you always to the very ends of the age. That's a message that was not only affirming to Paul, but is certainly affirming to us too, that Jesus is with us always. He's with us through life's storms. And if you've talked to a Christian who has been through the storms of life, they will be able to affirm to you the remarkable way in which God was supernaturally with them, that he quieted their hearts in the middle of the tragedy, that he, he made himself known in small ways that turned out to be significant um, to them. And then they would afterwards testify how God reassured them of, of his presence through that, that hard time. He taught them that uh, not necessarily that why these tragedies happened, but he assured them that he was with them through those tragedies, that he had purpose in it all. Do you have that kind of confidence? I mean, now, before the storms hit, do you have the confidence that God is with you always, that he will never leave you, so that when the storms come, you have something to draw on? Now, the second principle is that Paul knew the God that he belonged to, the God to whom I belong, he said, and he, and he says that in verse 23, and Paul understood, I am not my own, I have been bought with a price, I belong to God. In, in what ways can you say that you belong to God? Well, certainly you belong to God as the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and we have that picture of the church being the bridegroom of Jesus Christ. He's not about to let the bridegroom suffer loss. She is beautiful and precious in his sight, and nothing's going to tear the bride away from Jesus Christ. But secondly, we belong to God like, like a child belongs to her father, and since we are God's children. You know, what would you think of a father? I'm speaking of an earthly father. What would you think of an earthly father who sees his daughter in distress, and he walks off and doesn't care a thing about it? Or he sees his his daughter being abused or taken advantage of or persecuted in some way, and he doesn't do anything about it. Naturally, we as fathers realize it's our responsibility to care for our kids, and we will run to them and not let them be taken advantage of. And even though we are imperfect and sinful and selfish, we do that because that's our instinct as fathers. Is our heavenly father any less apt to care for his own children? Perhaps you have been through the crisis of life and you've called out, raised your hands to God and called out, Father, help. What does your father do when the child calls out like that? And additionally, we, are, we belong to God as the, as the sheep belongs to the shepherd. Jesus gave the illustration of the shepherd who had 100 sheep and one of them wanders off. He leaves the 99. He pursues that lost sheep. He keeps searching for it until he finds it and brings it back. 
That's the confidence that Paul has. Let's move on. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A fathom is about six feet. A little further they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the, boat, the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's boat, of the ship's boat and let it go. Uh, again, Smith uh, relates after careful inquiry of other navigators in the Mediterranean, he's trying to determine the mean drift of this ship and its, its course. And he determined that the mean drift of this ship would have been about 36 miles in, in 24 hours. And so they're, they're drifting at that rate and they're approaching the extreme east end of the island of Malta in verse 28 that indicates that they're passing this point where they start taking soundings because they hear the surf. They become aware that uh, they're nearing shore. And so they're quite alarmed by the fact because they're, they're, they're sensing that they're approaching shore and it's the middle of the night. Uh, again, from Smith, he says, the distance from Cotta to the point of Laura is 476.6 miles which at the rate as deduced from the information would take exactly 13 days, one hour, 21 minutes. Not only so, the coincidence of the actual bearing of Laura from Kata and the direction in which the ship must have been driven in order to avoid the Sirtis is, if possible, still more striking than the actual time consumed and the actual, uh, the actual the time actually consumed and the actual time that they arrived. So then after careful reckoning, of the direction that the ship's course was on, the angle of the ships to the wind, um, and the leeway that it would have been given, um, Smith finally concludes, hence, according to these calculations, the ship starting in the late evening from Cotta would arrive on midnight on the 14th day, be less than three miles from the entrance to St. Paul's Bay. Um, I don't actually think they did land in St. Paul's Bay. I think they landed further to the east in St. Thomas Bay. Is that what you think? You're, see, she's my resident Maltese, so she, at any rate, um, they're a long ways from, the, uh, from the, the port of Valletta, which is the big harbor at Malta, and the sailors uh, don't recognize where they are. They just hear, they become aware that they're getting close to shore, and they decide they need to drop four anchors from the stern to keep from being driven up on the rocks, and then just pray for daylight, pray that the ship lasts that long. At, in the meantime, the sailors decide, as sailors are apt to do, to abandon the, the ship and all the passengers and take care. What was that, what was that passenger ship that, that got hung up off of the coast of Italy? Remember all the, all the, the captain and all the crew abandoned the, the, the people? Who, all right, never mind. I can't remember what it was either. John, you know who that was? All right. What? Uh, yes, that was it. Yeah, it was the, the Concordia. That's right. At any rate, so the sailors decide um, they're going to take the dinghy, uh, which has very less draft, and, and make it to shore. Paul's on to what they're doing. They're abandoning ship, and they're abandoning the passengers. And Paul warns 
the Centurion, hey, we need these guys to get us safely to shore. And so I, I think maybe the Centurion may have not understood Paul's directions because it seems a little bit severe to cut loose the housers of the, of the, the dinghy because they could have used that. They could have used that, you know, once they got stuck as they're about to get stuck, as we learn in verse 41. And they could have used that dinghy to ferry their crew and passengers to shore. At any rate, maybe the centurion figured this was the most safe thing to do to keep the sailors on board. So they cut the, the housers loose and they let the dinghy drift away. Uh, verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, uh, have, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it and began to eat. That sounds a lot like communion. You know, he takes the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. But that's not what he's doing. He's just simply eating in front of them so that they, by example, that they'll follow him. Uh, verse 36, um, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. That sounds like a lot, but Josephus was on a boat that carried 600 passengers. Of course, it also went down, and he was one of about 50 guys that survived that. But at any rate, 276 is not a large number of passengers for a ship like this. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the seas. They've been, they've been doing this successively. You know, now they realize there's no reason to keep anything on board because they're going to try to beach the ship. They want everything off the boat. They want to draw as little as water as possible because the plan is they're going to drive the boat onto shore. Now, when it was day, um, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to land. So Paul is uh, further encouraging his shipmates to uh, take some food after an abstinence of 14 days. I'm sure they were weak with hunger. At any rate, since the ship is now anchored, it's not, it's, the motion is more predictable, less uh, wild and crazy. They could, they could be able to uh, more conveniently prepare food and get them ready for what lay ahead of them. Again, he assures them no harm's going to befall on, on them. Um, the sailors, now that it's daylight, they don't recognize the shoreline. It's not familiar to them. Had they been on the north coast of Malta, they would have certainly recognized because of going into the harbor of Valletta, but they, they didn't recognize where they were and whether they were at St. Paul's Bay or St. Thomas's Bay. St. Paul's Bay is the traditional site, but only a tradition since the 12th century. What did they know a thousand years later, you know, where Paul landed? But, you know, that's, there's a town there at St. Paul's Bay now, but uh, what they see, however, is they see a sandy beach with a creek running down into it, and they decide this is our best bet, so they 
cut the ship's uh, anchors, the four anchors loose. They untie the steering board so that they can have some control of the ship. They set a small sail on the foredeck. Now they have a little control, and their, their purpose is to drive the ship as far as they can up the sandy beach. Hopefully they just step off and walk ashore. But that's not what happens, because what they didn't see as they enter into this little bay is that there's, there are reefs there. Um, these reefs are not rock or coral reefs. This is a mud reef that, that uh, gradually turns into a tenacious clay. The bow jams into this mud and clay, and it can't go any further. But there's still monster waves coming from the back, and they start to just destroy the ship, which can, can no longer give way to the force of the wave. And the ship is being um, battered apart, and it would quickly disintegrate. Um, Paul is saved from execution. The soldiers would want to execute their, the prisoners because if they allowed a prisoner to escape, the soldier was therefore obligated to endure whatever penalty the criminal would have um, had to go if he was convicted. And so they don't want to do that. The easier thing is just to off him and, and be done with it. But the centurion keeps Paul and the rest from, from being executed. The angelic um, assurance is now perfectly fulfilled, right to the letter. The ship, the cargo are a complete loss, but everyone on board the vessel was saved. Now I have to ask you, why are there storms in life? Why are there these great tragedies, these shipwrecks in life? Can we just first agree that God controls the winds and the waves, and God certainly could have spared Paul and his company all of this travail. I mean, we know that uh, whatever God allows to come into our life, he, he, we know that he loves us and that he, he will give us sufficient grace to endure the storms when they come, that he will uh, remain faithful to us. And that is an agreeable place to start. And we know also that sometimes the storms that come into our life are satanic. You know, Paul would write to the Thessalonians, he said, uh, uh, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So we know that sometimes Satan does hinder, hinder us. Satan does bring storms into our life. And Job talks about that where, where Satan brings storms into the life of God's child and God permits it, but it's also true that Satan must get God's permission, and, and he's limited by what God allows. And furthermore, you make a very strong argument that God often uses storms in our life um, for our benefit, um, for the perfecting purpose of that. Um, J. Oswald Sanders I wrote a poem, I won't read the whole thing to you, but I've read it to you before. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects those whom he royally elects. But fourth... God has his purposes, and he doesn't always tell us what those purposes are. And he doesn't always ask our permission to do so ahead of time. The point is, 
that sooner or later, in spite of your confidence, in spite of your life experiences, in spite of you being a skilled sailor of life, you will encounter a storm in which you are completely out of control, in which your life is being driven by the forces acting upon it. And it's during those times that you're going to have to decide, like the sailors decided at Fairhaven, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the experts in life to tell you how to live your life, or are you going to listen to the Holy Spirit who's telling you, trust God, believe that He loves you, He'll care for you, He'll allow nothing into your life which is not first passed through His loving hands. See, that's really the point, isn't it? The ordeal in the movie uh, Adrift ends on the 41st day. Tammy's in this vessel that's completely destroyed, and she spots a Japanese research vessel, and she fires off two flares, successfully attracting their attention. The research vessel pulls alongside and lowers food and water to her and then tows Hazanya to shore. And she survived for 41 days before she was, being, before she was ultimately rescued, and, and she is to this day a very avid sailor. Having survived this shipwreck and three other shipwrecks, Paul is now one step closer to Rome where he must fulfill the commission which God has given to him to carry the gospel before the rulers of the Gentiles. God will keep his promises and he will keep his servant in spite of all of the appearances to the contrary. Paul will confidently trust God through those impossible circumstances. And the question before us is, will we? Let's pray.